the bread of life discourse. John 6, verse 22 through 59. It's a very famous passage. Some of us have heard it before. If you're new to church, you haven't been um, a part of a group that studies the Bible, then undoubtedly you've heard about the illusion of Jesus being the bread of life through literature and art. It is all over the place in Western literature. This is the first of seven statements that Jesus says, I am. When he says, I am, it harkens back, as we'll see, back to Exodus chapter 3, when the Lord revealed himself to Moses as the great I am, I am who I am. To Isaiah, where the Lord reveals to Isaiah that he tells them that I am and gives descriptions of what that means. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, it means that Jesus is the satisfier and the sustainer of life. That is what that metaphor means. That Jesus is the satisfier and the sustainer of life. And Jesus, Jesus' claim to be the bread of life was a claim that was hard for his hearers to accept. What? He came down from heaven? And so consequently, Jesus explains what he means. This is the uh, fourth week we've been in John chapter 6. Um, and um, it is worthy of a lifetime of reflection. We're going to be in it this week and one more week next week. And then we're going to enter into Lent and Scott's going to lead us in John 7 and John 8. But would you give your attention to God's word? Would you stand with me if you're able? John chapter 6, I'll begin reading at verse 41 and I'll go down through verse 59. This is God's very word. And he gives it to us, friends, in love. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that, come, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever and the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, 
and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. So let's do a little observation work on the passage, shall we? Open your Bibles, look at your passage, open your bulletins, and look at the text with me. Jesus approached the same crowd, he was approached by the same crowd that he had fed earlier, right? The 5,000 he fed with five loaves and two fish. They come and they track him down, and now we find that John is telling us that Jesus is preaching, teaching in the synagogue. Jesus is at church. He's preaching to the people. And that's the context in which we find this bread of life discourse. And, and the Jews grumble. They grumble because Jesus is making this audacious claim that he came out of heaven. They're like, what? what? We know his parents. Like Jesus is that snot-nosed kid. Came down out of heaven. You kidding me? No way. And the problem that Jesus had to deal with was the same one that we have. He has two problems in this passage that we also share. Number one, the problem is our familiarity with Jesus. We're too familiar with him. We know what Jesus is like. So did the Jews. They knew who his parents were. And second, not just a familiarity problem, but a feasibility problem. Can Jesus really do what he's promised he can do? Our familiarity with Jesus and his feasibility to accomplish that which he claims. There's all kinds of interesting word plays in the Greek. It's fun. You can see them in your English text too. It says, so the Jews grumbled. And then down in verse 43, verse 41 has the word grumbled. Verse 43, you see the word grumbled. And then verse 52, a different word, same idea. They disputed. There's all this grumbling in the text. You see that? And then you see this notion about heaven. Verse 41 says, he came down from heaven. And then you see later all this talk about heaven. Down in verse 50, 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. Again, he speaks of heaven. Then later on in verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. So there's grumbling and there's all this talk about heaven. There's talk about fathers. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father? You're talking about my father? And then Jesus later turns to the argument and talks about their fathers, doesn't he? he? He plays like a little judo master off of what they say. He says, you're talking about my father. Well, how about your fathers? They ate in the wilderness and they died. So there's all these interesting word plays. There's interesting word plays between life and death. But just notice this week, just read the passage again and circle all the times you see the word death and all the times you see the word life. It's just shot all throughout it. It's interesting. We'll get into it. Jesus wants us to identify, John wants us to identify with the Jews who are grumbling because of our familiarity with Jesus. When, when John uses the term Jews in his gospel, he uses the term Jews to represent the Galilean Jews during his ministry. And for John, the term Jews is something of a technical term for him because it means more than just a racial group in the gospel. For John, the Jews were those people who were rejecting Jesus because they believed that they could have life through their performance, through the law. 
the Jews for John are always people who stand in opposition of who Jesus is. And for the Jews, the incarnation of the Son of God, then and still today, it was and it remains the greatest stumbling block for Jewish people to believe in Christianity. That's why if you know a Messianic Jew, you know that the last hurdle for them to overcome was the idea that God would become enfleshed. It was almost impossible to imagine such an infinitely holy God becoming so terrestrial. And so, verse 41, they grumbled. The word grumbled is actually first in Greek, and it's got to be one of my uh, favorite Greek word finalists. It's the word egogazon. Egogazon. It's a fun word to say. Egongazon. Isn't it fun to say, right? So if you say to your children this week, quit egongazon, and you can use that. It's okay. Quit grumbling. Quit bickering. Why do you egogazon? And some of Jesus' hearers had heard him all of his life. They'd known him all of his life. They knew some of them knew him because of his connection with Joseph. Others, perhaps they, they had just come to know him and they had followed him to Capernaum. But they struggled again and again with knowing Jesus because he was all too familiar. If they had known the truth about his virgin birth, maybe it would have been easier for them to believe. In Micah 5.2, it says very clearly that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. But in Jewish apocalyptic literature, they believe that Jesus was going to come down out of heaven. In 4th Ezra, which is not in the Bible, in the Apocrypha, and then the Apocalypse of Baruch, it talks about how his, Jesus will come down from the clouds. The Messiah will come down from the clouds. Yeshua. And so they couldn't possibly believe that Jesus was, uh, was the son of Joseph and Mary. This doesn't make sense. His claims couldn't possibly be true. When I read this text personally and I think about how it applies to my own life, I think about the ways that I am all too familiar with Jesus. This is true for us as a society as well. Tulsa, Oklahoma, the bastion of Christianity. And so many of our friends and neighbors, even some of us in this room, are going, yeah, that's that snot-nosed religion that we've known about for a long time. That's snot-nosed religion. It used to be the thing we believed in, but not anymore. I heard an interesting story this week about um, the interns that work at Fox News and the interns that work at MSNBC. You know, that typically Fox News, right, is, represents the far right in their interpretation of the news and the events. And then MSNBC traditionally represents the far left. And you would think that those students, those young, those young 20s that are in, in, interning at these, at these various different organizations, right, who have radically different political views, right? I mean, radically different. You would think that because they have radically different policies, they live their life based upon radically different worldviews, that you would think, you would think that they would have actually radically different practices in the way that they live. But actually studies have shown that interns at Fox News and interns at MSNBC, you know what? Surely they view their sexuality different. Surely they view the way they use their money different. Surely their religious practices are different. But yet you can see it coming. There is almost no perceptible difference between the way somebody who associates on the far, far right and somebody who associates on the far, far left 
actually lives their life, at least in this small demographic. Sexual, sexual practices are almost identical. Religious devotion, almost identical. The way they spend their money, almost identical. Their moral values, the practice of those moral values, what they say their moral values are, are very different. One is all about free market economy. One is all about free market morality. But their practices are actually very, very similar. I wonder if that's true for you. I wonder if you were to take the people that you disagree with politically. And I know there's all kinds of different positions here and that's okay. It's actually beautiful. I wonder if you were to take those different people and I wonder if you were to say, let's examine their sex life. Let's examine the way they use their money. Let's examine the way that they spend their time. Is there any perceptible difference between Christianity and those who espouse to be Christians and those who don't. America's New Religion is an article that came in the New York Magazine not long ago, and it was written by a man named Andrew Sullivan, and he writes this, seduced by scientism, distracted by materialism, insulated like no humans before from the vicissitudes of sickness and the ubiquity of early death, the post-Christian West believes instead in something that they have called progress. A gradual ascent of mankind toward reason and peace and prosperity as a substitute in many ways for our previous monotheism. We have constructed a capitalistic system that turns individual selfishness into a collective asset and showers us with earthly goods. We have leveraged science for our own health and comfort. Our ability to extend this material bonanza to more and more people is how we define progress. And progress is what we call meaning. In this respect... Sullivan writes, Steven Pinker, who is an atheist, Steven Pinker is one of the most religious writers I have ever admired. His faith in reason is as complete as any fundamentalist's belief in God. So why do I talk about all that? I talk about all that simply to say this. Your familiarity with Jesus, if you aren't careful to continue to lean into the gospel, let him teach you and coach you and become not someone you're just familiar with, but someone that you're intimate with, that has the authority over your life, you will begin to pick up the pseudo-religion of the West, and that is a radical sense of independence. No matter where you find yourself, no matter if you're on the far right and you're pursuing a radical free market, or you're on the far left and you're pursuing a radical free morality, you're finding that your independence is actually what governs the way you make practical decisions, not Scripture. You're just a Christian because you believe in a subculture that happens to be Christian. Jesus steps into that world and says, no, you may be familiar with me, but truly, truly, I say to you, I am the sustainer and the only one that can satisfy your life. Do you believe that? Jesus goes on to explain in verse um, 44 that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And he goes on, it was written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And Jesus just keeps rolling right on. And you would, the issue with the Jews was not the issue that we had in the church 30 years ago that is the struggle over what he says in verse 37, this idea that the Father draws him. The Jews were not offended by predestination. 
It's interesting to me. They were not offended that Jesus says that you will not come to believe in me unless the Father first draws him. That wasn't their beef. Their beef was that Jesus claimed to be divine. That he claims to have authority over their life. And for some of us, you know, we still struggle with verse 37. How can, how can it possibly be true that, that we come to Jesus because the Father draws him? We talked a little bit about that last week. But our bigger issue is that Jesus claims to be divine. He claims to have authority over our life so that when he speaks to us in Scripture about the things that we are to do and be as a people, we ought to say yes to that. I will obey it. But oftentimes, even within the church, our knee-jerk reaction is because we have subtly been discipled by the world so much so that we're like, uh, I don't know if that's really what Jesus said. I don't think that part of the Bible's true. And we can very, uh, um, um, with very little nuance, Thomas Jeffersonized the Bible and then begin to be the arbiter over what's true and what's not. God's, friends, God's word stands true. Though every man a liar. And we are to submit to it. Wrestle with textual issues, no doubt. But its authority in our life should be the primary rock upon which we judge all other reality. Amen? What other options do you have? I mean, the secular project is failing right now in spades. I mean, the definition of success in the secular life is be happy, and that be happiness is found in terms of pleasure. But look at how much anxiety is on the rise. Look at how much depression is on the rise, how much loneliness is on the rise. I mean, like these, are, these are things that, that we, are, we are none too good at figuring out. And people are recognizing this who don't believe in God. And that's why even secular um, versions of the good life are finding religious practices because they're yearning, they're yearning. They're yearning for some kind of content to anchor them, and we have it. Does your life demonstrate that? Twice Jesus talks about predestination, and they counter with questions that assume it to be true. And they grumbled not because Jesus says that my Father draws you. They grumbled because who gave you the authority, Jesus, you snot-nosed kid, to have authority over my life? And that's what he addresses. Mankind's dissatisfaction with God's good gifts only shows the perversity of the human heart. Jesus didn't allow the people's confusion about his origins to distress him. He was not concerned about um, his own status. He goes right to the problem. He explains that the one, that those whom the Father has chosen for salvation among them would be all of those who would believe. Regardless of their ethnicity, Regardless of their ability, Jesus says, I am, I am the bread of life. Do you believe that? He goes on in verse 37, uh, 47, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life, not by performance, but by faith. Then he goes into their history. Let's talk about your daddy. Talk about mine, that's okay. Let's talk about yours. Your father ate the manna in the wilderness. They had the promises of God. They ate the manna in the wilderness. My father sustained them. And what happened? They died. Not just physically, but spiritually. For 40 years, they didn't worship the Lord. And they passed away that first generation. 
And Jesus counters them and he says, this is the bread that comes down out of heaven, the true bread, my body. I wish we could have seen his hand motions. Undoubtedly, they would be pointing to himself. If you eat of me, eat of this, you will not die. I am the living bread that has come down out of heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live. And the bread that I give for the life of the world, this bread that I give, in case you're confused, it's not the bread with which I fed you just moments ago, days ago, on the hillside, on the other side of the lake. It's my flesh. On the cross, you will see my flesh prepared for you, for the world to feast upon and have eternal life through me. And it will be the flesh that will rise again on the third day to conquer sin and death, to be a symbol of you, of the ever-sustaining nurture of my flesh for you. But it wasn't only their familiarity with Jesus. It was also the feasibility of what Jesus claimed to be true. Look at verse 52. Jesus had been speaking of everlasting life, and he claimed that, that he was the bread of life, that he could really provide the satisfaction and the sustenance that they needed. And he calls on a distinction between the physical and the spiritual here. When, um, when God gave the manna in the wilderness, he gave it only as a gift. And when God gives us Jesus, he gives it to us also as a free gift. When God gave the manna in the wilderness, what did it cost the Father to give the manna in the wilderness? It cost him nothing. He just created the manna and it fell from heaven for the Israelites. But when God dropped this manna, when God dropped the Savior, what did it cost the Father? It cost the Father everything. That's how much he loves you. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the manna of heaven. He is the one which we are to look at and say, what is it? All of our life, we are to ask the same question the Israelites asked of the manna. We are to ask it of Jesus. I thought I knew you. I thought I was so familiar with you, but only now have I begun to see how amazing you are. Year after year after year after year of my life, the more I read the Bible, the more that I commune with you and worship with your people, the greater I see that you are. You indeed can sustain me. You can fulfill me. You can do everything that you promised. You know how we know this is true? Because when one day you will be lying on your deathbed. And I will be lying on mine. And the, if you've been with somebody who has been dying, then you know, and in my experience, the loneliest deaths are those deaths where people talk about the excitement of the things that they've done in their life. Those are the loneliest kinds of deaths. People die. The most beautiful ones are the ones where people are on their deathbed thinking about the times they spent having meals with their family and the friendships that they shared. And the grit of life with which they helped another brother or sister out. In other words, the most lonely deaths are the deaths that talk about the excitement of their life, the things that they once did, the things that they achieved. And every CEO of every big company that has changed your life and mine will show you and tell you that when they're on their deathbed, even Steve Jobs, read his biography, he's not thinking about the excitement of their life. He's thinking about the mundane, the friendships, the things that we now look at and think that's the boring part of life. And that is what we think about before we enter into the presence of our Savior. And if that's true, then maybe Jesus is trying to teach us something now about his feasibility. Because it is in the mundane aspects of eating bread or of coming to the Lord's table week after week, which is not rote. This isn't rote. How can this be rote? 
your Savior's inviting you to dine with him again. It's a mystery that no part of the English language could possibly comprehend and communicate. He is drawing you into his presence to nurture and sustain you and to teach you that the beauty of life is complemented by the excitement, but it is not defined by the exciting experiences that you have. The beauty of your life is found in the boring, mundane, normal parts of your life, like eating. Jesus said that he was the bread of life because he says, I want to be part of every aspect of your lifestyle. I want to be part of the boring rhythm of your life, the way you eat food. The way food nourishes the entirety of your body, so also faith in me nourishes the entirety of your worldview. Do you believe this? If you do, you will have life indeed. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. As the living Father, verse 57, has sent me, I live because the Father Whoever feeds on me will also live because of me. Verse 58. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. We are a people about life. We are a people who appropriately put death in its right context. Christianity views death not as a passageway into something greater as our Buddhist brothers believe or our Hindu sisters believe. But death for us is an aberration. It is abnormal. It is not to be. It is not a pathway. Death is the penalty of the presence of sin in the world. And it is only if you believe in Christianity that you are rightly able to approach death with the kind of courage that you can face if you have lived and led a life worth living. There's an Eastern Orthodox theologian whose name is Alexander Shmaimon. He wrote a book called For the Life of the World. And he writes about the Lord's Supper. This whole book's about the Lord's Supper. It's a quote from John chapter six. And he writes, Christianity is not reconciliation with death. It is the revelation of death and it reveals death because it is the revelation of life. Christ is this life, and only if Christ is life is death what Christianity proclaims it to be, namely the enemy to be destroyed and not a mystery to be explained. Religion and secularism, by explaining death, give it a status, a rationale to make it normal. Only Christianity proclaims it to be abnormal and therefore truly horrible. And only through the lens of the Christian gospel can we enter into those phases of our life where we recognize that the most normal things of our life are where the gospel connects most deeply. Jesus is the bread of life for us. And the quality of our life is not achieved by the excitement that one experiences, but by the enchantment one has in the everyday tasks that make up our life. Jesus knew this. That's why he says, I am the bread of life. Our familiarity with him will only make him more slippery. It is re-experiencing the 
beauty of the grace of Jesus week after week, knowing that Jesus and his love for you is deeper than you first thought, that Jesus invites you soon to this table to come and commune with him, the bread of life, the life for the world. He comes to you and he holds out his hands to you to say, oh, I know that you may be familiar with me, but come and receive my embrace again. I know that you doubt my feasibility, but come and see my death on the cross and my resurrection on the third day. Come. Become familiar once again with Jesus and see him to be more than feasible to accomplish all that he promised. For he is for us the bread of life. Amen? Father, may we live that way. May we see that you are the bread of life, that you are part of the ordinary vicissitudes of our life, the ordinary aspects of our life. As common as it is for us to put food in our mouth, Jesus, may prayer be just as common. May a desire, Father, to obey you at your word be just as common. May love and forgiveness and going to a brother we've harmed or being able to admit that we're wrong be just as common as eating and drinking. Father, would you make us a people who don't live for the excitement, but live, Father, as a people who know that it is in the mystery of the mundane, Lord Christ, that the gospel shines the brightest. And so, Lord, let us not become pitchy in our church. Let us not try to market the church as a distraction from the ordinary, beautiful gospel that we preach. Christ, the bread of life, crucified for the world, given to each of us. And may, Father, you open the hearts of someone in this room. Open the heart of someone in this room who today doesn't trust in you. And would you show them that you are the only one who can satisfy and sustain them. And by faith, even now, would you draw them into your kingdom? Would you help them to run to the supper and to commune with you for the first time, believing that you are the bread of life for the world? And as we give of our tithes and offerings, Father, we pray that you would help us to do so as your people, defined by the identity that you've given us and not by the economics of the world. Please, Lord, help us to do this together as one body, brothers and sisters together, daughters and sons of the King. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.